0: Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit olcc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. chapter 5. And as we said from day one in this series, this is a revelation of Jesus. It's from him, it's about him, and that is the lens through which we're reading all 22 chapters of Revelation together. It's a revelation of Jesus who he is and how God is bringing the kingdom of God and human history to its final consummation in him. The Messiah, the promised Messiah, Jesus. I just want to say this too, I've mentioned before that Revelation is rich and dense and so we're going to be doing interludes around every three or four weeks where we'll set Revelation aside for a moment and we'll hear a now word from someone among us. Some of our staff people, our elders, leaders. And so we're going to actually be doing that next week. Wallace is going to be bringing a word next week. But as we look at Revelation each week, if you remember, we're saying, what did the text say to them in the first century? What did it say to those believers around 85 or 90 AD? The text was written for them initially. So we ask each week, What was the Lord saying to them? And then secondly, we ask each week, what is it saying to us now in 2021? What is the word of the Lord for us? And so in technical terms, the first part is exegesis, learning to draw out the meaning of the text, and then application. Then we apply what God is saying through his word. So this week, we're looking at chapter 5. We looked at chapter 4 last week. And if you remember, I said that chapter 4 and 5 go together. It's one vision, actually, that centers on two persons. The first in chapter 4 was God, the enthroned creator. You remember that last week. And it really was about trying to give a glimpse of God, but not being able to come anywhere near describing God, because that's how the Jews Were If you read the Old Testament, it was like describing his majesty and his glory and all these things about him and his characteristics, but his essence can never be known. His face can never be seen until you see it in the person of Jesus. And Jesus comes and he says, if you see me, you see the Father. If you see the Father, you see me. So we're going to look at the second part of this vision in chapter 5, so why don't you Turn there in your Bible, and you may want to grab a Pew Bible. We have those Pew Bibles around because we are people of the book. So we want it around us all the time. We want it in our minds, in our hearts. It was hilarious this morning. Joseph, little Joseph, came up to Brad and said, Dad, where is it in the Bible that it says, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and we should. And I'm just going, What? In the world. He he's how old again? See? Six. Okay, so six-year-old talking about the Shema, here, O Israel, the great Jewish prayer. And I'm just thinking, well, I'm sure that's what all six-year-olds across the city are thinking about. But we're entrusted with young people, right? And so we want them to be obsessed with God. And to be thinking, you know, rather than, Dad, what is that video game that you're going to let me play later today? He's asking, where in the Bible do I find the great prayer that Jesus talked about? I love it. And we want more of that, don't we? We want our kids to be obsessed and fascinated and enthralled with the person of Jesus and God the Father. So why don't we stand as we read Revelation 1, 1 to 14. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard. We use that, we use the NIV, we use different versions, and there's space for, for all of them. Revelation 5 1 to 14. Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered So that he can open the scroll scroll, and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb, standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We're at verse 9. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them. To be a kingdom and priest serving our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard a voice, the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Wow, we are having church this morning, aren't we? Goodness gracious. This book, just the reading of it, the book of Revelation brings a blessing, but reading the whole book will change your life, won't it? That's why we do it. And again, we do this on Sundays so that you can go home and do it during the week, just like this. Take your Bible, you young people, before school, after school, I would say at school, <laughs> at some point, Take a little time each day. One of my teachers is laughing, saying, no, that's not good advice. Don't read in my class. Take the Bible, open it, read it, read it out loud, pray it, use it as a tool to converse with God. It will start to get inside your heart. We're going to talk actually today about something practical that you can do along this line with chapter 5. So today our goal is to look upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus in chapter 5. And to grow by this as worshipers and witnesses. There's three things I want us to look at. And the first is found in verses 1 through 4. And it's a question. In verses 1 through 4, the question is being posed, who can open this scroll? So I want to take a moment here and unpack it. Just like we do, what did it mean for the first century Christians? What would they have thought as they heard this very visual image that was laid out before them? They read this at the churches and the background, they would have been familiar with this. The background is the Old Testament. Again, Ezekiel 2 mentions a scroll that was written on the inside and the outside. But what in the world is this scroll? Anybody else wonder that? you hear about what is the big deal with this scroll that's in the hand of Yahweh? Different interpretations on this. Like many times, we encounter different ways of viewing this. And some people would say that this is actually a reference to the Lamb's book of life. So later on in the book, you'll hear them talk about the Lamb's Book of Life, containing the names of those who have been chosen before the foundation of the earth. That's one view, as God has this in his right hand, the place of authority. Another view is that it's the Old Testament. Some interpreters over the last couple thousand years think that this could have been, perhaps, the scroll of the Old Testament, and that Jesus alone can unlock the true meaning of all the Old Testament scriptures. And there's precedent for that. If you look at Luke 24, you find Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And what's he doing with those two disciples that don't recognize him? He's explaining the scriptures to them. And he's showing them that he is actually the fulfillment. He is the key that unlocks all of the old testament scriptures. So that's another thought. These are both interesting ideas, but I think that the most compelling answer what is that scroll is that it is a book or a scroll describing God's plan of salvation, which will include redemption and judgment and everything. It's a scroll that explains God's work in human history from creation to recreation. I think that probably is the best explanation of this book. And so the question is, who can open it? No one is able to. We'll see in a moment here that Christ himself, he is the only one that's able to open this, to take it from the Father's hand. But the scroll, I actually did a little bit of research and thought about what this might look like and there's a helpful image if you look up here on the screen a scroll in the ancient world was made of papyrus and they would take it press it out and write in it and so you can imagine again all of this is highly symbolic language not sure exactly and the point is it doesn't matter we like to analyze and look at it and the truth is there is the plan of God in his hand and Christ gets to take it now, I, like you, probably think, now how did the seven seals work and all of this? And most likely in the ancient world, if you look up here, it was a rolled scroll. It was written on the interior. And they take string and they bind each scroll and they seal it with hot wax with a signet ring so that it authorizes the contents of the scroll and then it ensures that. The safety of the scroll. No one, not just anyone, can crack it open. And so if you look up here, we get to see perhaps maybe an image of what this looked like in John's vision. And again, the point is no one could lay hold of it except one person, and that is Jesus. Look at verse 2. A mighty angel, a strong angel, begins to proclaim who is able to open this. Some people say because it's a mighty or a strong angel, perhaps it's Gabriel because his name means the strength of God. So this could be Gabriel, could be another angel, we're not sure. And what does the text say here? No one is able at verse 3. No one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. So no one in all of creation, no one in the entire universe is able to come and take this scroll from the hand of God, except one. And how does John respond to this? He's heartbroken. He weeps bitterly. Why? Because he's heard earlier in chapter one that these things must take place. John, I'm showing you a series of visions about creation and the new creation. And so John is really devastated. He thinks, Well, this stuff is not going to happen. It's not going to happen as God is promising. So he begins to weep. This is intense drama. 2,000 years ago, as they read this in one sitting, they read the entire book of Revelation, people would have joined in. They would have been drawn in. And this is intense, a dramatic moment. He's weeping. And then look at verse 5 and 7. In response to who can open the scroll, only the Messiah can open the scroll. Verses 5-7 through explain that. One of the elders, we encounter the elders in chapter 4. Perhaps a representative of the church in the presence of God and worship. Perhaps an angelic being. We're not sure. The text doesn't say. But regardless... The elder says, John, don't weep. Lift up your head. Lift up your eyes. There actually is someone who can take the scroll. And he explains, Who is he? Who is this someone? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. And again, this would have just sparked in the minds of the original hearers. They would have said, In this vision, we are seeing the Messiah. One of the first messianic prophecies in Genesis 49 was there will one day come a lion from this small little tribe called Judah. And one day he will establish the kingdom of God. And so in John's vision, it's signaling that this is him. That promise way back in the book of Genesis is fulfilled in the person of Jesus He's also the root of David, yet another Messianic prophecy. And we, I, I told you from day one that the book of Revelation is just laced with Old Testament promises. Well, here's another one. He's the root of David. Another very graphic image here that in the vision, it's showing that Israel at one point was cut down like a tree. They were sent into exile and it was a time of great despair. And yet, Isaiah the prophet said, even though it looks like the people of God are chopped down, one day the Messiah will come and spring up out of that stump. He's connected to the roots, and there's life in the roots. Again, John is saying, through the vision, this is him. He's the root of David. And what does it say? He's conquered. And friends, this gets really interesting. He has conquered. How has this promised Messiah conquered? How in the world is he in the presence of the enthroned God? Well, he's not the typical messianic figure that the Jews thought he would be. He's not coming in triumphantly and conquering. He actually rules and reigns through a cross. And so this vision is a graphic picture of that. He is the conquering one. He is the promised Messiah, but he looks like a slain lamb. Now some of us, if you're like me, I try to visualize this in my 21st century mind. The point is symbol upon symbol upon symbol, and it's like All of the Old Testament promises are being projected onto this singular person of Jesus, and they pile up. That's the point of it. It's not, wow, that is a strange-looking lamb. (laughs) I mean, this lamb, that's not the point. Our minds would think that, but really the point is this is the promised lamb of God that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, that he would come at verse 7 and be a slain lamb, and that he would end up ruling the nations. And so image after image is being stacked up on him. And the point is that he conquered through suffering. And it's a message for us. Christ says to his followers earlier, if you remember, Connie talked about this in chapter 3. He turns to his followers and says, you also will conquer but you'll conquer like I did. You will rule and reign with me, but it will happen as you embrace the cross. As you too suffer, God will exalt you and trust you with authority and power. Hey, on a personal note here, like most of us, I am not real enthusiastic about suffering. Can I get an amen? If there's anything you amen this morning, it's that. I just don't sit around and think about how wonderful suffering for Christ and the gospel would be. I just don't. Now, it's necessary to think about those things, and I trust the grace of God that if and when I get to suffer for his sake and you get to suffer for the sake of the kingdom of God, that the grace will be there. And I'm counting on it. But just so you know, your pastor does not sit around and meditate on how wonderful it would be to be martyred for Christ. I'm weak like everyone else. And I'm like, man, I want to go eat pizza. And I want to hang out with my family. And I want to enjoy Jake's soccer games. And I want to take walks with Amanda. I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to suffer. But friends, we might What's the book say? What does the New Testament make abundantly clear? If you follow Jesus, you will suffer. Now some of you are saying, are you talking about you know, suffering in my body and my back pain and all of that? That is not what we're talking about. What this text is talking about is we will suffer. Like Christ suffered for the sake of the kingdom of God and bringing the gospel to all nations. That's what the text is saying. Now, does that mean that God doesn't care about other forms of suffering? Of course not. Can God redeem and give grace and meet us in excruciating physical pain and sickness and disease? What do you think? You bet. And it is called a great mystery. The mystery of suffering in either one of those ways is a great mystery. And it's okay for human nature to cringe in the face of it. But the point of this text is we can suffer in any way that we're faced with. Whether it's for the gospel, for truth, or it's suffering in our bodies or our hearts, our broken souls. The Lord is there, is he not? to help us because he has suffered to the point of death no one else has suffered like the person of Jesus and therefore no one else can be there for us like him so the text goes on here to talk about the lamb having seven horns and seven eyes and again the point of this it's old testament language that says he is mighty the horn in the old testament scripture speaks of power and might rams had them and other animals. You don't mess with a ram that has large horns, right? It's fierce. So that's the point of the text here. He has seven eyes. We encountered that earlier. Do you remember what it represented? Chapters one and two. Even four, it's the spirit of God. And so Christ is clothed with the spirit of God. He has wisdom. He's anointed. He sees. His eyes are piercing. The flaming eyes to see into the heart of individuals, to see into the status, the state of the nations. The point is only this Messiah right here is the one who can take the scroll. Now, here's what I want us to do here, okay? This is practical. We just got one more section after this. But I want us to look at this text so far. And we talk a lot around here about arrow prayers, We glean or we draw from the Bible arrow prayers. What's an arrow prayer? Someone tell me. What does that even mean? Why would we call it an arrow prayer? Somebody holler at me. And I can't hear. It's hilarious. I'm like, yell at me. What are you, Zion? (laughs) Quick, short prayers. That's right. Someone else said something there. Christ practiced this. If you remember when Christ encountered the enemy in the desert in Matthew 4, he had arrow prayers ready to go. The enemy tempted him and he said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Boom, straight from scripture. So what I want us to do is look at this. You can look at the text we've been through so far or you can look ahead a little bit. And I want you to find an arrow prayer. To find a short phrase that you could take with you from here and pray tomorrow and Tuesday. It's like a stick of gum. You're looking for a nice, whatever your favorite kind of gum is. Find that stick of gum from the passage and what do you do with the gum? Take it, put it in your mouth and chew on it through the day. So, an arrow prayer gives you something to chew on throughout the day, and it's full of power. And as you do that, it transforms your mind and heart. So, look at the text for a minute. I'm going to give you about 30 or 45 seconds to find an arrow prayer, and I want you to practice right here and pray it. You can close your eyes, you can keep your eyes open, but take that little phrase and pray it to the Lord. Make sense? As people of the book, this is what we do. We read the scriptures, try to do it every day so that we can interact with God. The relationship is with him, not a book. But part of this is to glean an arrow prayer every time you read the Bible. So as I looked over this passage, I just pulled out, you are the lion and you are the root. And I began to pray that. And then I began to pray as I did that, Jesus, you are the lion. You are fierce on my behalf. You are the fiercest and strongest. You are the lion on behalf of me. You're the lion on behalf of our church. And so I find myself, if I will pray that, put that verse in my mouth and chew on it through the day, I'm communing with Jesus The lion, and it's gone from just an idea to something immensely practical. And then I was kind of puzzling over, you're the root. What in the world? That is strange. Jesus, you're like a carrot. No, I wasn't praying that, but my mind is strange. I was picturing, okay, Jesus, you're the root. And then I began to think, you know what? My life is rooted in you. You are the root, you're the vine. And so the wind can blow all the, but I am rooted deeply in you, Lord Jesus. This is an arrow prayer, all right? So whatever your arrow prayer was, I encourage you to take that with you through the week and pray it beginning this afternoon. And friends, the Lord is going to take us deeper and deeper into these things. It's as simple as that. You can be 30 seconds old in the kingdom of God and pray deeply. You can read a passage and learn how to pray the scriptures. You can be Smokey's age. You can be in your 90s, and there's always something new. The word of God is fascinating. Life in God is fascinating. This passage is interesting, and I will tell you today, this is the most interesting human being who's ever lived that we're looking at. I don't even have to sell you on it. Luke, is he not the most fascinating, interesting person that's ever graced human history? Jesus. He is a paradox. Think about it. Jewish guy from an obscure town. I like to call it the armpit of the Middle East. Nazareth. Nothing good comes at it. And yet human history revolves around him. He started the greatest movement in world history by going and dying. At age 33. What? He is a paradox. But he's a divine paradox. There's no one like him. And you should give yourself wholeheartedly to him every day. So at verse 8, we've seen a question. Who can open the scroll? Only the Messiah can. And then we end with this. There is a worshipful response. And it's verses 8 through 14. And in short, everybody around is responding to the crucified, resurrected lamb in the same kind of way, aren't they? Just like I'm saying here, they're absolutely enthralled with the most interesting human being who's ever lived, the Lord Jesus. And they can't seem to get enough. I think Claire was saying, we sing this stuff because it takes roots in our heart, but we also sing it because he's infinitely worthy. Man, you can sit there and say, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. Because he deserves it. And because it changes us. So at verse 8, you've got the four living creatures and the 24 elders. These high-ranking angelic beings. And they are worshiping. Look at verse 8 here. He is seeing a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Again, symbolic language. Psalm 141, King David says, let my prayer be like incense. And so John is seeing the prayers like incense coming up before the throne of God. And we added to it this morning, didn't we? We got to pray and praise and worship and it went up like a fragrant offering before God. What do they sing, friends? They sing an old song, a boring song, a tired, lame song, What's it say? It's saying a new song. So what the text is saying is every new act of God, every move of God, everything that God does calls forth a new song from his people. And we're seeing that, aren't we? Worship team, are we seeing it? God is on the move. God is doing great things and we're going to erupt with new songs. And the Lord's gonna take these new songs that are rooted in the Bible and scatter them out all over the place. I'm telling you today, I've said it before, the Lord is doing something here, raising up new songs because he is infinitely worthy and he's going to send them all over the country and all over the world. Why? Because he wants to. Do we deserve it? Is it because Brad's amazing and the team? No, it's because he wants to do that and he wants his church singing the scriptures and so we're going to see that. So you can look at this in greater detail just like last week. They're basically saying... Christ is worthy for three reasons. Kelly talked about this earlier. He was slaughtered. He ransomed people from every people group on the planet. And he is making them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God. If you think about this, 2,000 years ago, John is seeing God's eternal plan to rescue as many from the nations as he possibly can. We'll encounter this again in chapter 7. But this is called God's divine diversity plan. Man, diversity is so cool. It's so new. I'm so glad that we rediscovered it over the last decade. It's really cool to hire people from different walks of life and different nationalities. Because humans are so clever. And we like an assortment of people so everyone's represented. Is that a new idea? No. God had diversity in his mind and in his heart long before any of us did. Long before any of these corporations did. God says, I'm looking at my church, and it will be Asian. It will be African. It will be Latin American. What's the old song say? Jesus loves the little children. Red, yellow, black, and white. And this is how the Lord views the church, and we're going to get to be a part of it here in Oklahoma, God's divine diversity plan. All right, more to look at here, but the point, friends, when verses 11 and 12, there's lots of angels. (laughs) He's struggling at the leash of language here, and he's saying, there's myriads. There's 10,000 times 10,000. There's 100 million. And he's not even scratched the surface. The point is, there's lots of angels circled around this one the promised Messiah, the chosen agent that's going to bring the kingdom of God in human history to its consummation.